Good morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, I think it's a, a good rhythm of life to gather together on a Sunday like this, but I know that it can be difficult, so we don't take it for granted at all. Our hope, uh, we have the, the bar pretty low, I, I hope anyway, we would desire to be encouraging to you. And one of the ways that I hope that you sense that is that you've not come to hear from the experts. Uh, if you are somewhat dealing with doubt, maybe some discomfort, maybe some suffering. Uh, you've not come here today with a bunch of people who have figured it out. We need encouragement as well. So the reason we gather every Sunday is to hear from Scripture and to listen to the voices of one another, to be reminded of the things we often forget. So that's our desire. Our hope would be to be helpful to you in some way and to leave you with some encouragement. And one of the ways that I get to do that is to look at Scripture together with you in this moment. Let me get you situated just for a minute because I'm going to read eight verses right smack dab in the middle of Matthew 15. And Matthew 15 is right smack in the middle of all of the gospel. So if you're just tuning in, you've come at a great time because the gospels are the, the introduction to the life of Jesus. But you're also coming in right into the middle of the story. So if you're just tuning in and you're not sure where we are, we basically just opened you know, the middle book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I'm just going to start reading. So I want to get you situated just a bit. Matthew is an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, and he has described the promise that came all throughout the ages about the coming of the Messiah. He described the birth of Jesus, which we just celebrated at Advent. He shows the life of Jesus in small bits as he grows into maturity and then describes the way that he ministered in the world. So Jesus is now well into his ministry, the three-year period of his life between age 30 and 33. He has already given the Sermon on the Mount, which you may be familiar with. He is described in parables, his kingdom and what it's going to be like when he comes. And there are two things now that are coming into full clarity. One, there is conflict with the leaders of the day, the religious leaders especially. And two, that Jesus is demonstrating his rightful claim to be the Messiah by powerful works. He commands the water, it obeys. He heals people. And it's right in the midst of all of these acts of, I mean, he is as busy as it gets. Jesus' calendar is full. And we pick up now in the 21st verse of Matthew 15. I'm going to read just down to verse 28, and I'd love for you to follow along. It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I'm going to pray for a moment and ask that you join. <clears throat> Father, please 
Send your spirit who takes from Jesus and gives to us, who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness. We've now read scripture and we often feel the temptation to go through the motions to have this be a meaningless exercise or perhaps even only a brain exercise. But we ask that you would take these words, the truths that are presented here, and you would seal them deep in our hearts. I pray that just as Jesus is being revealed slowly in his ministry, that our eyes would be more open than they were before. That our hearing would be a bit sharper. Our hearts a bit softer. And I ask in the midst of all of this that our hope would not be centered in, in our things, the things that we do or our church does, certainly not in my voice, but give us encouragement that you're here and you're present and you're with your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my jobs, I think one of my goals all the time, should be to help you see and to believe that the gospel is good. To think to yourself, it's better than I thought. That's the journey of Christianity, is to be reminded again of what you've forgotten, and then in the reminding, you come to cherish it a little bit more. I remember years and years ago, I'm not sure how far back the song goes, but a song that was sang very, very often, especially when I was helping to lead college services and teaching young people, was a song called, How Great Is Our God. Do you remember this song? you know this song? came right to your heart and your mind. I love this song. And I had to tell Daniel earlier, I'm not specifically requesting it. I'm just saying it's a great song. And I remember trying to belt that thing out at one point, And it struck me as I was singing it, that as much as it's a statement of people and an aspiration of people, that it could be just as well to put a question mark after the statement. And it's really a defining question. For all of humanity, I mean, the the question is, yeah, how great is our God? Legitimately, how great is he? And the way that you answer that is going to change drastically the way that you present yourself to him. If you see him as small, then you will have a tendency to make yourself big. And if you see yourself in humility as smaller and begin to come to grips with how great our God is, well, that will change everything. So I didn't actually change the song. And I didn't start singing it, how great is our God? I didn't start singing it like that. I think it's still written well. It just struck me. And a question to my own soul. Yeah, what do you say concerning this? And what I want to press home, and maybe the argument that I want to make, or the thing that I want us to see as we read this small little section in Matthew 15, is to ask this question again, how good is the gospel? Because gospel, that word means good news. Maybe you've heard that before. But all of us know that there are gradations in good. So, for instance, you might say, Oh, good, they got my order right. There's no onions. That's good news. It could be good news that your favorite sports team did the thing that sports teams do. They won. Great. Good news. We say it's good news when the cancer scan comes back clean. It's good news to 
hear of friends and family doing well. It's good news when the in-laws come to visit. I promise you it is. But in the midst of that, I bet that you can sense that just telling someone that the gospel is good news, they may instinctively ask a question like, how great is our God? They might say, but how good? And in this little thing that happens here in Matthew 15, I think that there is a pressing of the question for us. And I hope as I consider this passage that's got some confusing parts, some oddity to it, that at the end of it, we'll be convinced just a little bit more that the gospel is, and forgive my, my poor English, the gospel is a little gooder than we thought. Good news made gooder. That's a working title for today. It's the goal. And I'm going to get there by looking at a couple of things in this little story. I'll do my best to explain it like we usually do when we come to a text. And then I want to look at this question or this thought that you might ask. Let's say there was an offer, an announcement, or or a kind of ministry being presented here in Jesus. Some of the things when presented with something that's supposed to be good news, we could ask questions like this. These are the questions, the categories we're going to think through. Well, who's making the offer? Who's behind this? That's going to be one question. Who's offering? Another question related to the good news might be something like this. Well, what's the fine print Maybe the question would be something like, what do I have to do to get this? What's it mean to obtain it? So who's offering? What's the fine print here? And then finally, I think we want to ask the question, who gets in on this? Who can apply? What's the criteria And as we consider those questions in this exchange with Jesus and this Canaanite woman, my hope is is that we have an imagination that grows to say, yes, this good news is very, very good indeed. So let me just start with this first bit of dealing with the text, something that I think does have some questions in it. It tells us at the outset that Jesus went from there and he withdrew. That's the word that, that Matthew uses. And he goes to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, there's one aspect of Tyre and Sidon that I can say right away that is important, and we'll come back to a second one later. But the first thing to note is, maybe just a trivia question if you're into that kind of stuff, this record of Matthew giving us Jesus leaving and withdrawing to this region is, as far as we know, the furthest trip that Jesus ever took. This is the furthest that he gets from his homeland, from his hometown. I'm going to give it to you in some, some sort of regional ideas. This is to the north and west out onto the Mediterranean Sea. He leaves the area of the Sea of Galilee where he's gone back and forth a number of different times. And he goes north and west all the way as far as he can go. Tyre and Sidon are 21 miles apart. And they're even further than that from Gennesaret, where he was before. So he is taking a journey. And in those days, that's a long way. You see, it used to be not that rare for people to never leave their county or their state. We are now all jet setters. So everyone thinks it's very, very common to go everywhere. It was not that common when travel was difficult. And as far as we know, this is the furthest Jesus gets from home way out there into Tyre and Sidon. We also understand from Matthew why he did it. It says he withdrew. Jesus could not get away from the crowds. 
He was a mother of three toddlers. He was a preschool teacher. He was a celebrity with paparazzi constantly pressing in. He needed to withdraw. And I think that one of the reasons that he left this far and took a trip is the same reason that you or I might take a trip. You say to yourself, I just need to get away. I have to step away from this. He has tried solitude in the middle of the night. It says that he has tried jumping onto a boat and getting into the middle of the sea. And still people surround him. He leaves one side of the sea, paddles all night, gets onto the other side, and the crowd is there waiting for him. So he withdraws to a place as far as he has been, Tyre and Sidon. And he meets there a Canaanite woman, which again, we're going to see in a little bit why Matthew describes her in this way, and it's significant. But a Canaanite woman comes and she cries out, this person of help, this Jesus who's come with an offer of help and is full of mercy and power, she cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She gives him a title. And it's the first introduction as a reminder to us that those who see Jesus for who he is, some of their hope is built on who is offering the help. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Later in verse 27, she repeats it again. Yes, Lord. Verse 25 as well. Three times she declares, Lord. And this is meaningful because if I told you that something could be offered to you, some kind of help that was absolutely necessary for you, and it showed up, you might want to know who sent it. Say you got a check in the mail. You run out to the mailbox, you come in and you open it up and it's a check and it says $10,000. Well, that's good news. Who doesn't like $10,000 in your mail? What's the next thing you're going to say? The first and logical question. Who sent this? Because I've gotten checks for $10,000 in the mail before. Can you believe that? Aren't you happy for me? Isn't that good news? And then I flipped it over and it said, uh, American Homeowner Insurance Company of the West or something. And then I look in the bottom of it and it's, it's not a check for $10,000. It says, you could save up to $10,000 over 20 years if you switch to us, Right? In other words, my hope and desire of the offer, here's 10 grand, shrinks immeasurably when I realize who's offering. Oh, you're a scammer. Oh, oh, you just want my business. Oh, okay, okay, fine. Or you could imagine if it was a true person, a real thing, if someone offered you help when you desperately needed it, you could imagine them being one of these two things attributed to the Lord. She says not only Lord three times, but she says have mercy Help me. She expects that the person who's offering and is there in front of her is powerful and kind, is great and good. And it's this combo of the person offering that makes the gospel so good. Can you imagine a powerful figure offering, but you're not sure if they're in it for you? You can imagine perhaps the Russian government offering you a wonderful contract with the military for glory and guts. And you might say to yourself, well, I know they're powerful and they have all authority, but I'm not sure if this is good. Now, I know some of you uh, distrust government to the point where I could have used any government on the face of the earth. I chose Russia just to keep away from some of that stuff. 
But you can imagine someone with great power but not a lot of mercy. It's why you got to be careful who gets the, the stones, the power stones or whatever they're called, the infinity stones, right? Why is the whole world, including all the best superheroes, why are they fighting over the, the, the things, the glove, the stuff? Why are they fighting over that? Because it matters who gets it. You don't want just power wielded anywhere. So the Canaanite woman could have trembled in fear because she knows there's power in front of her, but she's not sure if the power is benevolent. So just interacting with great power doesn't guarantee anything. In fact, you might come in in contact with great power, but you're just nervous and you think this won't go well. It's like doing your taxes. You just think, I feel guilty. This won't go well. I don't know. The IRS could take everything. But I suppose you could imagine the flip side as well. You could imagine the most benevolent, nice, kind-spirited, merciful being in the world. But they're helpless. Imagine having a medical emergency. You break your leg or something on a hike. You fall down and you can't get to your device. It's sitting over there. Worse than that, you can't use your fingers because you feel like you maybe were paralyzed. But I have good news for you. Your beloved 12-year-old golden retriever is with you. And you might say, what a picture of mercy and love and benevolence. That dog will give you more face look licks than you ever needed. Every tear wiped away, tail wagging, stay by your side the whole night. You would be delighted to know they were in the presence of such a kind being. And yet the whole time you'd think, I wish you had opposable thumbs. I just wish you had some power. Could you please understand anything but treat? If you could just go over there and pick up my iPhone and dial 911 and learn the English language, if you had some competence. So if I told you, good news, a very kind person is offering their help, you might be okay to say, but can they do anything? I saw somebody say one time as a joke, and I'm kind of paraphrasing so I don't remember it, but they said something like, you know, it's amazing what you can learn on YouTube, anything. I spend hours, and you can just learn anything on YouTube. So if anybody needs an appendectomy, just give me a call. That's a very willing person, but you, you don't trust their competence. What this woman sees in Jesus is something that makes her heart rejoice. She's dealing with need. She comes and she sees before her, oh my goodness, unspeakable benevolence and unlimited power. He's the rightful king of everything. He controls all things. He's the Lord. He's the inheritor of the throne of David, the great ruler of my people. Well, not her people. I'll come back to that in a minute. Of people. They're going to intertwine. And he's merciful. Do you see the combo there? It's the best. It's the best possible news. So if I say to you, believe the gospel, it's good news. It's built on this, that the one who offers is trustworthy and capable. The one who offers is merciful and Lord. I also think that it's good news because the word mercy is in there. She doesn't come and say, give me what I'm owed, O Lord, son of David. This Lord loves to come to the aid, to the help of people who need mercy. 
And that sounds probably like you and I. The Lord is merciful. That makes the gospel good. This interaction between the merciful Lord and the woman leads to Jesus commending her faith. And we need to deal with a couple of oddities in the text here because it seems as though Jesus is a little bit more reluctant than he normally is to heal. And I want to say a couple of things to this because you could come away from it and say, why is he reluctant? Why is he speaking like this? In fact, I've heard some people say that it seems as though Jesus is harsh. And I want to speak to this because I do not believe it is healthy for us to attach harshment a harsh dealing with the God of the universe. Harshness usually indicates some kind of overdoing it, some kind of unnecessary pressure, kind of leverage being pushed for a manipulative purpose or an anger purpose. And Jesus is not harsh, but he is testing. He declares some things that are on their face true. He's been given a direct mission to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And one of the reasons that he says this, I believe, is to invite the question, well, who are the lost sheep of Israel and where are they? When he answers her and says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, a lot could be said about this word dogs. The point being, though, that she was not offended Dogs is a common phrase to to give this idea of those who are in the house, but not directly children of the household. And there's a test being given here. A test for the disciples. How would they respond to this phrase? What do they think Jesus is supposed to be doing? And furthermore, a test to the woman. To see if she really sees Jesus for who he is. And she passes the test. And the things that makes this gospel even better is that Jesus heals her on the basis of her faith. So, let's rewind. And I gave you the example of something that came in your mailbox, $10,000 is a check, and the first thing you'd ask is, well, who offers? And if it's a scammer or something doesn't make sense, you think to yourself, okay, I'm out. But what if you turned over the check and you see it is Leon County of Florida? And it's got a stamp and a seal and you're like, wow, what in the world? Then maybe the next question you'd ask of this good news is, how do I cash this? How do I cash in? What do I have to do? Where do I have to go? How can I get this? It's a great offer. It's offered by a trustworthy source. How do I obtain it? And I think that there are various religions around the world that offer forgiveness. They offer the good news that God may in fact overlook sin, may in fact welcome you, that you might have a place one day, but it's not truly good news because the fine print is so odious that almost no one can get it. So what do we have to do to get in on this deal? Well, that's part of the goodness of the gospel. Simply believe. I want you to imagine a scenario in which God was benevolent and desired to forgive sins. And it would be good news if he said, well, here's an offer. I will forgive your sins. 
All you need to do is stand on one leg for two and a half hours on the top of Mount Everest at the summer solstice every third year. On its face, objectively, this would be good news. Because without that offer, there's no hope of forgiveness. All of us have sinned. All have fallen short. There's none good. No, not one righteous at all. And now God breaks into the world and he says, here's the offer. It's like a $10,000 check. And you look at the fine print on how to obtain it. And you start looking around. Maybe someone says to themselves, oh gosh, I'm not able to obtain that. I'm in a wheelchair. Or I don't have the money to travel to Nepal Or I'm terrified and afraid and I can't get to the top of this thing. You might say to yourself, how could you possibly get there and survive? Think about the summit of that mountain. There's going to be thousands of people there. It's going to be a contest and competition. And what would happen is is that good news, the fact that someone could be forgiven somehow would be lessened in some way because of the odious nature in which you got it. I heard of some people after Hurricane Michael that spent more than five years waiting for help. The promise of help was there. It was authorized, backed by someone who could provide it. But the fine print took five years to remove the tarp from the top of their house and to receive the good thing offered. And I imagine that the initial relief of hearing that this help was possible was probably lessened over the course of time, such that by the time everything was settled and you asked them, were you helped? They might say, "Uh, it was helpful, but I don't know. I've teased my brother for years because we were on a trip one time and my brother was looking at magazines, and he would always be enamored by some great deal. My brother and I were very, very different. My brother uh, had a a banking system with my parents for his allowance. It's just that he used it like a credit card and was always in debt, and I usually just said, nah, keep it. I want to see how much I can pile up. So it was my brother who always had better stuff than me and the cool stuff. He was a part of CD exchange clubs where you could sign up for it and they would come in the mail stacks on stacks. And one time on this trip, he's reading through this magazine and I see him getting really excited. He's going around and he's showing us. He's like, look at this. This is free sunglasses. Five pairs of free sunglasses. This one's, this one's got uh, wrap around on the side. These are so cool. You can get these for free. And we're on this trip on the bus. My cousin and I are like, oh, that sounds cool. I don't need any sunglasses. Fine. He's like, what do you mean you don't need them? They're free. And he's so excited. And then he comes back and he starts filling the thing out. And in the midst of filling it out, he pulls out his checkbook. And we start laughing uncontrollably. Because he doesn't see the irony of being excited about free sunglasses, but having to write a check for it. So we ask him, we say, well, what in the world are you doing? It's free sunglasses. He's like, well, there's, like a, there's a fee for shipping and handling and stuff, you know. And then he starts to laugh with us because he begins to see the irony of it. And so he fills out his check for $17.95 or something for 20 cent, you know, Taiwanese sunglasses or whatever it was. He fills out 17 bucks. He's going to send it away. But before he seals the envelope, he pulls it back out. And on the memo line, he shows us what he's going to write in big capital letters, free sunglasses, and then sends the check. 
You see, the offer was amazing. And six weeks later, he got a package in the mail of free sunglasses. It was reputable. But the fine print just really undid the whole thing. That's not the way the gospel is. Jesus, who is the merciful one and the Lord of all things, who controls all things, what he requires of you is to simply believe. What he asks of those who have gone astray, what's the fine print for this forgiveness? The fine print is, can you look? Can you taste? Can you see? Can you open your hands to receive? To simply believe. That's what it takes to go from darkness to light, from death to life, from outside to in. That's all it takes. In other words, what I'm telling you is if the offer showed up in the mail, not only is it from a reputable source who can deliver and is kind and good, but there's very little fine print, and the fine print just says, receive. And I believe that this, a story like this, where this woman has nothing to bring, she comes with nothing but need, with need, she confesses who Jesus is, and Jesus says, that's all it takes. See me for who I am. See your need. Come to me. Ask me to heal. And he calls this faith. It's good news made better. Now, there's one more thing that I think is actually the driving point of the whole passage. It's why I messed up my wording earlier with who the son of David is. And I believe what we're supposed to see in this passage is that Jesus is hinting He's beginning to unveil the unbelievable reality that the good news of the gospel is made better by who gets in on this. Who can apply? What's the criteria? And the whole of the story is told to show that Jesus, on his trip, his vacation, that he tries to get away from, he not only crosses some geographical boundaries to get to the sea, but he crosses ethical boundaries. And he crosses religious boundaries. He has been dealing up in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee, an area that I think would have been sort of a mixed bag. There would have been God-fearing Jewish people. Perhaps they weren't as zealous as they could be. We saw that the Pharisees came at the beginning of Matthew 15 from Jerusalem. It probably indicated that maybe their teaching wasn't on point. But nonetheless, it was a place where Israel dwelt. Now, Jesus leaves in his middle of his ministry. For this one time, he leaves and he goes out to Tyre and Sidon to a place that is decidedly not Jewish. A place that is outside the bounds. Not of the household of God. These are the outsiders. In fact, it's, isn't it interesting in verse 22, Matthew says, a Canaanite woman. When was the last time you heard Canaanite woman? Or Canaanites at all. You might have to rack your brain and you're saying like Canaanites. And you'd be right to remember that we're talking way back in Israel's history. In fact, before the nation of Israel was ever constituted, the promised land Canaan was full of, according to Joshua, the Canaanites. And what needed to happen for Israel to be set up, God's chosen people, is they needed to go and kick out the outsiders. 
So the armies of Israel were set against the Canaanites. The Canaanites were the people who needed to be removed. The ones outside the promise. They were the obstacle to the promise, not the inheritors of the promise. But Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon and encounters a Canaanite woman. Earlier in Matthew 11, Jesus seems to have made a point. He's been dealing with his own people. He came as a prophet without honor in his hometown. He came to those who should have known him but rejected him. And he says to them, you know what? If the works that I'm doing now would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. And now he takes a little journey just to prove his point. He goes outside of the place that should have known who he was. He goes beyond the ethical and the religious bounds. And he interacts with a woman who Matthew says, it's a Canaanite. Those who were intentionally kicked out of the land. And what he does is in his interactions with her is to prove to the disciples and to show those who would listen in on this gospel. Those of us like like the church now who reads, would show us something. There's a contrast being described here. Jesus was born into a Jewish family in the lineage of David. He is taught in the synagogues. He has reached out. In fact, Scripture says that he acted as if he was a mother hen who longed to gather her children, and Israel rejected him. He gave them direct teaching. They were blind. He spoke right into their ears with a megaphone. They were deaf. The hearing aids turned off. Hardness of heart. Now he leaves the region just for a moment. He goes into Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman who is not supposed to know, has no teaching, no background, rushes to him. Sees him for who he is. Confesses him brings her need, is persistent, understands that she has nothing to offer. She's not offended when he is a bit standoffish. And what he's demonstrating here in this exchange is that his ministry will be marked by two great facts. That he has come to his own people and they will reject him to the point of him dying on the cross, but in his death, he will gather up to himself all the nations of the earth. What he is showing is that the promise to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed is coming home to roost in Jesus. The reality is is that Jesus and his mercy and the offer of forgiveness is not for a select few. It's not for those who have the right CV. It's not for those who are born in the right line. In fact, his ministry is openly received by those who shouldn't see. The goodness of the gospel is that Jesus has come to take those on the outside and to bring them in. Israel heard everything in 8K, HDR, full surround sound, and remain hardened of heart. The Canaanite woman with a severely oppressed by a demon daughter is for the most part ignored. But she sees and she hears 
and she receives healing from Jesus. The gospel is so much better when you realize it's not for the elite, not for the select few. It's for all who can see and who humble themselves, not by a demand, but for mercy. I've probably mentioned this before to those of you especially who've been around the church for a good bit, but my brother and his wife, their two sons, my, my nephews, have cystic fibrosis. And they're doing fairly well, and they're teen years now, but it was absolutely something to consider. My brother and his wife have been tireless and creative and very effective in raising awareness and funds for the CF Foundation, and we've done the runs and been a part of the fundraising efforts. I've watched the courage that my nephews have to sit for a couple hours a day in a compression chest and take their meds and see them playing soccer and involved in things. And all the while, so encouraged by the progress that's been made in the last two to three decades in CF treatments. Life expectancy, some 30 years ago, was in the teenage years, and it's been pushed up into the early 40s now, and there's continued hope for more progress. My brother is bright. He, he likes science and sunglasses. As I mentioned earlier, he's coming up a lot today. But he, uh, he's been motivated now to consistently follow the breakthroughs, the things that are happening at research labs related to CF. And so I'm on some mailing lists, and I, I'm interested, and I try to follow along, but I know he knows so much more. And one of the things that's unique to cystic fibrosis is that the range of sy- symptoms that people experience is not due to just one uniform gene mutation or gene malady, but instead there seems to be a mix of a number of them. And so what happens consistently is that research goes forward and it will help a portion of this population, but not always everyone. So there have been times when I get the notification in my inbox and it's some great breakthrough, something that would even allow them to not have compression chest stuff anymore. It would be essentially a functional cure. It would allow such a range of life and hope for the future. And this thing is announced with exclamation points from the foundation. And I read the email, and I'm excited. I know this is good news because there are so many families who will be impacted by this. But I send it along to my brother, and I ask the next question. Who is impacted by this? Does, is, is this for the boys. Is this their thing? And, and oftentimes, he'll respond back and he'll say, this is great research and it's helpful, but no, it's not the particular gene mutation that the kids have. So we press on and let's pray or let's see that it can get, get over. And two things must happen simultaneously there, right? One, we say this is definitively good news, but it's limited in some way. So it tempers the, the gospel. And what I'm saying to you and what I want you to see in this whole exchange of Jesus leaving Israel, going out to the place where the Canaanite woman comes, who somehow can see and somehow knows and somehow humbles herself, that what Jesus is saying is that the gospel is for everyone. There is no measure of sin, no malady, no mutation No uncurable disease that you are facing that cannot be healed by coming to Jesus and seeing him with his mercy and his power and his lordship. The gospel 
It would be good news if Jesus came and said, okay, finally, I restored Israel. They're going to be a light to the world. I'm so sorry for all you Gentiles. You're still living way out there. But instead, what Jesus is going to declare at the end of his life is that this gospel should be taken to all the ends of the earth because everyone gets in on this. Mercy, by its nature, is for those who do not deserve it. And the great invitation of the gospel is not that it comes authoritatively by who offers, the Lord, the merciful one. It's not good just because it's to be received, not earned. Faith alone gets you there, but also by the scope of this good news. You cannot make yourself an outsider too far off. You cannot sin so deeply that it does not apply. If you're an outsider, or if you're not sure about this Jesus thing or religion thing, and you're sitting here listening, maybe you've heard before of people who are helped by Christianity. I had a friend one time, after describing the gospel painstakingly to him and praying for him and wishing that he would come to know Christ, listen through the whole speech and then turn to me. I was hoping in repentance, but instead say, oh yeah, that sounds good for you, man. That sounds great. You want to go jet skiing tomorrow? In other words, he, he, he could say like, oh, that's good news, you know, for you. And I would just tell you that if you desire peace and desire forgiveness, if you know you need healing, you need to be redeemed, that this faith, this gospel is not just for those other people. It's not just, oh, it's good for you. It's good news for everyone. So my hope on a morning like this is that we see as we've brought out the gospel again and we've set it before you and we've sung it and we've prayed and we've seen it in the life of Jesus, that you can say more definitively that this good news is better than I thought. It runs deeper than I thought. It reaches farther than I thought. If you see it like that, then I think we're growing in the direction that we should be. Let's pray.